Well, I bring you greetings from the great state of Texas. It was great to be a Texan yesterday and to be in Texas. To see, see the election, 63% of Texans voted for Bush. So it was, everybody was very excited. There, there, there is intelligence in Texas, that's right. There is intelligence in Texas. There's like 32, yeah. There, there are 32 congressional districts in Texas and only seven of them are Democrat. And I was really pleased they did some redistricting this last year for which Tom, uh, Tom DeLay got caught a lot of flack pushing that through. But they got rid of, um, they got rid of a Democrat that, I mean, I remember when Tommy and I were getting involved in politics back when we were in seminary and we were trying to get this guy out. He's just been around forever and they finally got rid of him and put in a good Republican. So it, it just made you warm all over. It was, it, it was almost enough to make you want to get the ghost and do a little praise dancing. Well, before we get started, we better make sure that we're, we're in fellowship and get rid of all those mental attitude sins towards all the liberals and ready to focus on the study of the Word, so let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we do thank You for Your goodness and Your grace to us, the way You provide for us, the way You have blessed this nation with the tremendous freedoms that we have and the way you continue to uh, provide for us and protect us. Father, we thank you for uh, the way the election went the other day. We pray that you would uh, continue to guide and direct this president and whatever doctrine he has in his soul, that he would apply it. And we pray that there would be those around him who understand the truth, the importance of uh, many of the issues related to national security and the uh, general health of a nation on the basis of establishment truth, and we pray that, that that would be the counsel that he responds to. Father, we thank you for this congregation, their faithfulness to your word, and we continue to pray that you would provide a pastor-teacher in the months ahead to take this congregation further and farther in their spiritual growth. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we teach this evening Things we learn and study. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I had quite a trip down to Houston, left right after church on Sunday, and drove down and spent uh, uh, Sunday Sunday night with uh, with Dan. But before I got there, I stopped along the way and had uh, sort of an evening snack, rest break with uh, Charlie and Carol Clough. And spent about an hour with them. They live about 10 miles off in 95 in northern Maryland. So that was, that was good. And I think the, uh, deacons are working to set up a schedule where, where with Charlie and Dan and some of the, uh, few others, they'll rotate on a, on a weekly basis. I mean, on a monthly basis. So it's not going to be one person all the time, but every, every month there'll be a good rotation. And so, uh, there'll be some real solid teaching on Sunday. Uh, for the coming months, and Charlie's excited about that. And, uh, of course, I spent Sunday with Dan down in D.C. and then went on down the road 
to, uh, it's amazing what happens when you cross the Mason-Dixon line. I mean, if you look at that political map the other night, and you see the, the red states and the blue states, and I never can remember which is which, but you notice that, that all the states that swing Democrat are in the Northeast. They are, they are the states that have the lowest per capita church attendance in the country. Same thing with the left coast out there in California, Oregon, and Washington. These are the states that have the, the lowest impact of Bible doctrine uh, throughout the country. And as soon as you cross that border, I've noticed this, I think this year I've been down to the D.C. area four or five times with Dan's graduation and two or three other things. And the churches are big. The churches are everywhere. I got off the road at uh, on, on Route 22 down there to go to Charlie's house, and you're just driving through an area not too dissimilar from this, not heavily populated. It almost reminds me of driving down two. And yet, within the course of about six miles, I passed... Uh, Probably ten churches, the smallest of which was larger than any church I can think of, but between here and New London. And it's just the impact of doctrine that makes a difference in, in the culture. And of course in the South, because the Southern denominations, all the denominations split during the, uh, war between the states. And the Southern denominations, you have the Southern Baptists, Southern Presbyterians, uh, Lutherans, everybody split. The southern branches all stayed conservative longer than the northern branches did. The northern branches all went into Protestant liberalism uh, very early on, and these uh, southern, in fact, the southern Presbyterians didn't reunite with the northern Presbyterians until the uh, mid-1980s, and they were still fairly uh, conservative in some areas. Southern Baptists, of course, are still Southern Baptists and still uh, and still conservative, but that has impacted the culture in the South and in the in uh, much of the West. So doctrine really does make a difference, and it, even if a generation generation shifts away from doctrine, the residual impact of that training and that way of thinking still uh, has has benefit. Uh, sort of a residual impact for the, for the coming uh, decades, and that and we still see that and that and the impact of that. Well, we're in Abraham, so open your Bibles to Genesis 12. But that was something that really hit me as I drove down down through through Maryland and on down to through Virginia and the South was just a large number of churches. Then, of course, as soon as I crossed into South Carolina, my whole theory got blown because they had all the... It must be some real scuzzy area. They started having all these billboards for massage parlors. So you got carnality everywhere. Okay, Genesis 12, Abraham. What I want to do this week and next week, these are the last two classes we'll have on Abraham, is I want to use that opportunity to try to package together and tie a bow sort of on many things that I have taught and focused on and emphasized uh, during the last six and a half years. And many, uh, much of this has focused on the 
importance of the dynamics of the spiritual life, how we grow, how we advance, the importance of doctrine, the uh, spiritual skills or the stress busters, and how we handle adversity and stress. Now, in Genesis 12, we see the first two tests in Abraham's life, and these are comparable to tests that we go through in the believer's life. There are a little over 12 tests that we'll see in Abraham's life that are outlined in the Scriptures. And you see, as as Abraham goes through one test after another, some he passes, some he fails, but each one of these tests are related ultimately to God's basic promise and provision in his life, which is the Abrahamic covenant. So we have to continuously go back to that covenant and the threefold promise of land, seed, and blessing. Now, there's a difference for us. The difference for us is that God has given us a tremendous number of assets, which we learn when we study the New Testament. And so it's not just that that our lives are related to just those three things, and Abraham's wasn't just related to those three things, but that was the focal point for, for what the Lord was doing in his life. For us, it has to do with the unique spiritual life of the church age and all of the spiritual assets that God gave us at the instant of salvation. And we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit, and God is working in our lives to create in us the character of Jesus Christ. And all of this is part of a much broader uh, environment, which is that of the angelic conflict and what God is doing in history and what God is doing in the church. And we tend to get so... uh, uh, focused on our own individual lives and our own problems and the own, the, our own, uh, circumstances that we forget the big picture and we have to have that overall bird's eye view of what God is doing in each of our lives and the fact that it's not about time, but it's about eternity. It's about the future. It's about our preparation for the future. And in that sense, this is what is going on with Abraham. God is preparing him for his future destiny, and he doesn't realize it in his lifetime. He's promised the land, but he doesn't realize it. And Hebrews 11:8 and following tells us that Abraham left his home because he was looking forward to that city that was built with built by God. He was looking forward to the future. His present time life was determined by future plans, and that's what faith is. And I've said that. As we look at Abraham, we have to realize that Abraham's life has a biblical interpretation. There's so many different things that happen in Abraham's life. And it covers, uh, the Bible covers it from Genesis 12 to Genesis chapter 25. And as I have, uh, done my study and background on the life of Abraham, it's interesting how different people have different takes on the life of Abraham. Different pastors have taught it differently. But one of the things that has hit me is how does the Holy Spirit, how does the Holy Spirit deal with the life of Abraham? One of the foundational issues when you're doing Bible study is not just to go to the text and say, okay, what does that mean to me? But how does God interpret these events? And when you go into the New Testament, I pointed out that, that Abraham is used to, as an example of justification by faith. Let me put this up on the overhead. For example, in Romans chapter 4, we have a reminder of the verse in uh, Genesis 15, 7, 
where we're told that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so this is a picture of justification and imputation. Then we come to Hebrews 11.8 and Abraham is used as an example of walking by faith. And walking by faith isn't walking by means of the act of trusting, but it's walking by means of what you believe. It's walking, uh, this comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 7, that we walk by faith and not by sight. Okay, sight, here I'm going to draw an eye, just so you know what that is. Now that eye is sight, and it's looking at some object. But when you are walking by sight or by empiricism, you're not really walking by sight. You're walking on the basis of what the sight is looking at. Okay, the object of the sight, right? It's the object of your empirical observations, and that's what you're you're depending on. So when you talk about walking by faith, it's not the faith that's the means. It's the object of the faith. So when we walk by faith, that is emphasizing the fact that we walk on the basis of the doctrine that's in our own soul. And so Abraham is a picture of not only justification by faith, but also walking by faith. He is also a picture of election because God in the, in the, um, in the New Testament, for example, especially in Romans chapter 11, and it's, and uh, verses uh, 3 through 5 talk about the election by grace that God has chosen Israel by election. And this is a picture of the believer's election in Christ. And then we have Abraham as a picture of mature sanctification. And this is given in James chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. And again, that passage cites the Genesis 15, 7 passage, that Abraham had believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So this ties it together. What's the importance of Abraham's life? Abraham shows us what happens at salvation. He is a picture for us, a concrete picture of imputation and justification. Those are abstract concepts. It's difficult for us to get a hold of them. But we can see the specifics at the his birth. So that has to do with the time of the initial regeneration of Abraham. Then we see that, that he is called out, and God elects him, chooses him, and he's going to get, give certain blessings. So it is a picture of the fact that God has an elective plan for Abraham. Then as Abraham matures, he is a picture of the Christian life, walking by means of faith. And then he reaches maturity, and again, he is a picture of Christian maturity and how to get there. So Abraham is a picture of salvation, the Christian life, 
and God's plan, the, the outworking of God's plan and purposes according to his elective decrees. And all of this is tied up in Abraham. So for this reason, Abraham resonates w- with us as we read through and we see him in, in all of his flesh and blood and his failures and his successes. So we begin with the first test, which is outlined in the first four verses, which is the command to get out of your country, leave your family, and go to a land where I will show you. And Abraham partially obeys. He doesn't really fully separate from his family. But he eventually gets to the land. God commanded him to go to the land. I pointed this out last time. He didn't say go to the land, leave the land again, bounce back and forth, you know, go down to Egypt, have a little holiday, you know, go down to the uh, to the beaches up on the Mediterranean, enjoy yourself in Egypt, and then come back. Uh, he said go to the land. He didn't say go beyond the land, go past the land, go through the land. He said go to the land. He never told him to leave. So once he gets there, God makes him a second promise, and this is the basis for the second test. And in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And Abram understands the promise, and there is an initial obedience to that promise, and he marches through the land. Uh, This must have been quite a sight. As he goes through the land, starting in Shechem, he builds an altar, and in essence, he is claiming the land in the name of Yahweh. And in what is being pictured here is positional truth. What we have in Christ, the Abrahamic covenant, is an unconditional gift to Abraham. He has the land, and he'll eventually control the land, and his descendants will live there. It's his positionally, but it is not his experientially. He never owned land. When Abram finally dies, or excuse me, when Sarah dies, Abram has to go buy a piece of land, a barrier. He never owned the land, yet God gave it to him. And so that is a picture of the reality that we have in positional truth, and that experiential reality is a result of our own spiritual growth and dynamics. And this is an understanding of positional truth as outlined in Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. And this was is an error subjunctive expressing the potential uh, purpose of our positional truth. Positional truth is a judicial reality. It's not something we experience. You don't learn about it because you uh, have some sort of emotion, some warm fuzzy. See, this is the problem that we have today is people are going through adversity and rather than looking to the Word of God or to how to handle the Word of God, they're, they're looking for people who will uh, support them in their pity party. And they just want to get together and talk about all the horrible things that have happened to them, about how they've been abused and how their, you know, their parents were alcoholics or how uh, uh, their school teachers never understood them or how they grew up in, in the ghetto and they grew up in poverty and because of that, they just had such a hard life. And they're so self-absorbed that they can't see and don't see and refuse to see the impact that doctrine can have in their church, in, in their life. And the trouble is that churches are now, uh, enabling them. Isn't that a good psychobabble term? I'm so, I'm so 90s. 
the the churches are enabling them because what the churches are doing is they're they're picking up these worship patterns of praise and worship courses and and contemporary Christian worship and all of this are these are songs that focus on your subjective experience with Jesus and all this does is promote self-absorption it doesn't promote a, a recognition of the fact that that we are sinners and that we're living in the cosmic system and that God has given everything to us and provided everything for us in his logistical grace, including Bible doctrine, and the way to handle life, which is always going to have adversity and be uh, very difficult at times, is on the basis of the Word of God, not on the basis of turning inward or finding somebody who will come along and just uh, uh, put their arm around you and tell you it's all going to be okay and and it's not really that bad and and it's just so terrible that your parents were that way. And just feed yourself absorption. You get, you, except that's what's happening in so many of these churches. And if you look at some of the, or many of the pastors of these huge churches, all they're doing is standing up in the pulpit instead of teaching the Bible. What they're doing is they're teaching uh, these kind of self-help techniques and their motivational speakers. I tell you, I've just about gotten bilious around here in the last two or three uh, weeks when people have found out that that I was going to Houston. You wouldn't believe what I have had a dozen people say this. You would not believe the first thing out of their mouth. Do you know Joel Osteen? I mean, Joel Osteen is the big health and wealth prosperity preacher down in Houston. He, they just Their church, Lakewood's called the Oasis of Love. And... Uh, you know, they just moved into the summit. You know, they have about, they're, they're now the, supposedly the largest church in America. About 18,000 people fill the summit, which was where the Rockets used to play, uh, down in Houston. And here up in Connecticut, in southeastern Connecticut, see, if you've got, if you've got cable or if you have satellite and you get, got the church channel and you have three or four of these religious channels, Osteen's on there three or four times a day. Great advertisement for Houston. Anyway, and I just couldn't believe it. Here, here I am up here. I can believe, you could believe it if I was somewhere else, but up here people say, that's the first thing out of their mouth is, oh, do you know Joel Osteen? Well, I won't tell you about the time I was in his daddy's office one time, but that's, that's a totally different story. I was down there one weekend. Tommy Ice and I went down to Houston back in about 88. Tommy had gotten a call from Hal Lindsey. And Hal was working on a book on uh, Christian Recon- the Christian Reconstruction Movement and post-millennialism. And he had heard that Tommy was the man who knew more about the Christian Reconstructionists than anybody. So he called up Tommy and said that he was going to be in Houston on a particular date, I think it was in late January or February of that year, and uh, would Tommy meet him in Houston and they could spend some time sharing research. And Tommy, Tommy's always been very gracious to me, and Tommy said, well, I'll come if I can bring my friend Robbie Dean, who is taking a doctoral course at Dallas Seminary on the subject right now, and he's got a lot of stuff to add. So I got to meet with him, and Hal was preaching at Lakewood, because that's the TBN, the Trinity Broadcasting Network hub in Houston. And that was quite an interesting experience to go there. And then afterwards, we all went back into John Osteen. John was the father. That was his back in his office. And then we all went out to dinner. And Tommy and Hal didn't know Houston, so they got lost. 
And I ended up at, at Bennigan's with Paul and Jan Crouch and uh, Gavin and Patty McLeod, you know, the, the captain from the love boat, and um, sat there for an hour and a half before anybody else showed up. So that was a rather interesting evening. That was my exposure to Lakewood. But now, now John Osteen died a few years ago, and his son is a pastor, and he's got a great presence, and he stands up, and he has a great style of talking, but all it is, he never gets into the Scripture. He never talks about it. All he does is tell these stories and talk about, you know, five things you can do to have a better marriage. But it's never grounded in the Scripture, and everybody goes home, and isn't this wonderful? And while he's doing that, his mother's off in the wing somewhere healing people, which is interesting because, you know, his father didn't get healed by his mother. He had to go through dialysis. But that's the, that's the problem with healing ministries. They don't work. And... Um, and they don't ever advertise, the, the faith healers don't ever advertise that they're, that they're really going through chemotherapy for their cancer. And that's how they got healed, which is exactly what this guy's mother did. But that's getting sidetracked. The problem is that people just, that, what happens is you, everybody I've met at this church is self-absorbed. And it's about 80% women. And they're all women who've gone through some kind of heartache, and I empathize with that. They've had an abusive husband, or they've been uh, cheated on, or whatever their story is. But what they do is they go to church, and somebody just gives them a big, you know, they, they can all have their own self-absorbed pity party there, and everybody just pats them on the back to make them feel good, but nobody gives them any doctrine. Well, if you're going to get anywhere in the Christian life, you've got to get past the fact that you've gone through adversity and quit focusing on the, the, the adversity, the heartache, the difficulty, the disappointment, whatever it's been. We all have them. But that's not the point. The point is that God is greater than the problem. And if we're going to go anywhere, we've got to focus on the divine solution to the problem. Well, Abraham had his problems. And here he is. He's moved through the land. He's moved from from Shechem down to Bethel, and then down to the Negev. Now, this is a simple operation. Now, we're in the process of moving, and the movers are coming this next week. And if I had it to do over again at this point, I probably would choose not to do this. And it's just two of us in one house. But this wasn't two people. This isn't just Abraham and Sarah and um, Eliezer. He's got about 300 slaves and servants to move with him. This is a major operation. This is like taking a major corporation with all of your employees and you're moving them down through the land. And then there is a test now in the land, in the place of promise, in the place of blessing. There is a famine. This is what we studied last time. In verse 10, this is the adversity. It's just one of many different challenges that could be faced, but it's specifically in relationship to that which was promised. Now, there was a famine in the land, and Abram Abram did what? He went down to Egypt. Notice how economic the Holy Spirit is in his description. He says, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there. But it's not just Abram moving down there. It's Abram and Sarah. 
It's not just Abram and Sarah. It's Abram and Sarah and Lot and the 300 slaves and servants and the whole crowd. He is, put yourself in Abram's position. He is in charge of this large company. He's the CEO and he's one of the, he's like Bill Gates. He's one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. And there is a famine in the land now and he's responsible for the welfare of all the people who work for him. All of his slaves, their families, their kids. He's responsible for all the herds, the flocks that, that are part of his business empire. And with the famine in the land, how can he feed everybody? How can he take care of his assets, which are his cattle and his sheep? How, what, what is he going to do? So the pressure on Abram is mounting from month to month as the heat increases, as the drought increases, the plants, the shrubbery, the grass turning brown and dying. And the issue for him is, are you going to trust God or are you going to trust your empirical senses? Are you going to fall back on, quote, common sense? Or are you going to trust in the promise of God? And if Abram had trusted God, God would have provided at the right time the rain necessary because God had already promised him that in that your seed would be the source of blessing for the world. That means that Abram isn't going to die and Sarah isn't going to die in the drought. I'm in the famine. They are not going to die. God will take care of them. See, he understood this finally many years later when God told him to go sacrifice Isaac, his only son, up on a mountain that he would show him, on Mount Moriah. And Abram understood. He said, even if I kill him, I know that God's going to bring him back to life. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us. He understood that God had made this promise, and no matter what Abram did, God would create a miracle if necessary in order to resurrect the seed and resurrect Isaac. So at this point, the test is, Abram, are you going to trust in the provision and the assets of God, or are you going to move into panic palace and try to solve the problem on your own. And see, this is what most of us do. Now, most of us don't have a direct revelation from God in terms of living in a particular location. But we have direct revelation from God in order to to tell us how to live the Christian life, and the principles that uh, define the spiritual skills, how we are to advance and how we are to trust him, that we're to walk by faith and not by sight. And so when the test comes, what we do is is we hang around for a little while and get some ideas from somebody else, and, and then rather than trusting God and applying the Scripture, we bail out way too early. We get caught up in fear and anxiety. We let mental attitude sins, sins start dominating us. And the election's a classic case. I mean, I can't tell you how many of us, myself included, sometimes you'd sit up watching television and you'd hear all the reports about uh, different polls and different uh, different people, and you just go to bed depressed thinking, well, I guess God's going to take this nation through something horrendous, and I really don't want to be a part of that. It may be God's plan, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. And, you know, we would all experience that. We had our ups and our downs. And uh, right now we're all feeling a little good because uh, things turned out the way they did, and we like that. But that doesn't mean God's not going to discipline the nation one way, one way or another. And and we have but we succumb to mental attitude sins of fear and anxiety and worry about the future. Why? Because we weren't trusting God. 
God is a God of history. He's in control of history. Jesus Christ is in control of history. And whatever happens and whoever gets elected, whether it's someone we want or someone we don't want, someone we agree with or someone we disagree with, we have to realize God's the one who's in control, and so we trust him. And the same thing happens in every single area of adversity that we get into. So we have to. We started last time with a review of something we started years ago when I first came, and that was the doctrine of adversity and stress. And we related that through the book, our study of the book of James, and then later we went into First John, and we developed many of these principles on the spiritual life in our study of James, John, the Upper Room Discourse. And so this is a good time to to wrap it all up and to be reminded of God's faithfulness in the midst of adversity because this church is going through another test. Adversity. Point number one, just by way of review, adversity is the inevitable outside daily pressure of life that attacks and seeks to penetrate the soul. Stress is the optional inside pressure of the soul caused by reaction to the external pressures of adversity. When the believer is negative to doctrine, when the believer negative to Bible doctrine allows adversity to penetrate his thinking, he has succumbed to the arrogant skills. And what are the arrogant skills? Well, first of all, self-absorption. You start looking at your problem. You start looking at how it hurts you. You go through any number of different things. You go through some kind of uh, financial adversity. And financial adversity can be personal or can be national. We can go through a time of national uh, depression or recession, time of uh, rapid inflation. Uh, Financial problems can be caused by uh, global economic movements that you have no control over. And financial problems can be caused because of your own personal uh, financial mismanagement. Often, uh, financial testing comes uh, along, partnered up with some other adversity. You have a job loss. Now you have to find a job, and at the same time you have to pay the bills. It can come uh, partnered with health problems. You have financial problems because you develop uh, various health issues that demand that you pay a tremendous amount of money for good uh, good health care and so it has you can have multiple problems in the midst of that financial adversity and the uncertainty that comes along with that you begin to focus on what you're doing and how you don't have what you want and you can't do what you'd like to do and the focus is on poor me and you want to throw that pity party and so as soon as some environment that comes along that makes you feel better about everything, then you look at that as a solution. That's what happens in a lot of these churches. Rather than getting doctrine, they're just getting a lot of feel good. It's just the Christian counterpart to drugs. It's an emotional high, and it's not, it may not be a drug-induced high, but it is an emotional high, and it has nothing to do uh, with doctrine. See, this is the reason that so many young people, and for the last 40 or 50 years, have uh, turned to drugs and alcohol is because if you listen to the message of the secular world system, there's no meaning, there's no purpose. You're just a cosmic accident. So life has no meaning or purpose no matter how much effort you put into it, no matter how much work you put into it. Uh, life is just meaningless. 
So no wonder they're turning to alcohol or drugs, just trying to find something to dull the pain of existence. And see, if you understand life as a Christian, that the basic orientation of the fallen soul is to try to somehow make life work apart from God, and at the very core of our life as an unbeliever, we realize we can't do it. The only way we can deaden the misery of reality and... and uh, numb the pain is through some sort of something that causes us to separate from reality, whether that's drugs, whether that's entertainment, whether that's always jumping from one thing that's exciting to something else that's exciting, but it's never trying to cope with reality as it is, because as an unbeliever, without Christ, without the Word of God, without doctrine, without hope, there's no solution. Everything falls apart ultimately, and God has structured the universe in that way. Now, we all face adversity. Point number two is adversity is the outside pressure on the soul. It comes from two sources. One is the result of our own bad decisions, and the other is that we live in a cosmic system that's fallen, so there's suffering from many areas that it's not directly related to our own bad decisions, and God allows this for the purpose of accelerating our spiritual growth, which is what's happening in Abraham's case. God is in control of the weather, and God who controls the weather allows this this famine or these weather conditions, probably a drought, to take place in the land to test Abraham to see if he's going to trust God to supply his resources or not. Because God is a God who is going to supply through logistical grace that which we need to stay alive to achieve his purposes, not to stay alive to achieve your purposes. Always remember that. It's easy. Sometimes when you talk about logistical grace, people don't hear what logistical grace is all about. Logistical grace isn't God providing everything you need to achieve your goals. Logistical grace is God providing everything you need to achieve his goals. And they may not be the same. And God's going to give us enough to do what He wants us to do in His plan for our, for our lives. Third point we looked at last time. Adversity is what the external circumstances of life do to you, but stress is what you do to yourself. It's what happens on the inside. It is a result of your volition to handle life's problems apart from divine provision. Point four, we said that adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Point five, stress in the soul is the result of sin nature control in your life. Now, there's all kinds of varieties of adversity. There are all kinds of varieties of adversity. Let's just think it through, starting at probably the what's closest to most of us, and that's relationships. We start off with uh, adversity in the area of relationships with people. Now, this can involve the most intimate relationships that we have, which relate to family, marriage. If you're single, it can relate to just having a social life because man is created in a way that he wants to have relationship with other people. And so you have to deal with the problem of being alone and uh, the test of, of loneliness and not being 
uh, uh, lonely and letting that motivate and dictate your decisions. Then it has, we have business relationships, the people we work with. And often you're around people you work with or go to school with more than your own family. And that can be at times a tremendous source of, of testing, especially if you are a believer and the people that you are around on a day-to-day basis are not believers and they operate on a worldview that is completely different uh, from your own. So we have uh, various different kinds of relationships uh, testing. Then we have what I just mentioned a minute ago, which is financial testing, and that can come from either uh, historical trends and what happens nationally or can be a result of personal decisions. Then we can have uh, weather-related disasters, such as the four uh, hurricanes that went through Florida this last summer. It can be uh, blizzards. It can be uh, tornadoes. It can be the result of uh, freezes, and you wake up one morning and the temperature drops down to zero and your pipes burst and the house floods and, and uh, everything gets destroyed. You can have health-related uh, disasters. You can develop some sort of debilitating disease that's not enough to, to kill you, but it's enough to make life very difficult. Uh, as you age, as you get older, uh, our physical bodies begin to break down. We develop degenerative diseases such as arthritis and uh, uh, heart problems and other things of that nature. And so we have to handle that. We're not able to do the things that we did uh, when we were younger, perhaps. So you have challenges in the area of health. There's all kinds of different different adversities that we face. Uh, Job said that man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. But as a Christian, we realize that this adversity is not this adversity is not meaningless. God is in control. Whatever the challenges that we face, whatever the rejection may be, whatever the the difficulty may be, whatever the obstacle, God is in control, and that test is in our life for a particular reason, either as discipline or to motivate us in our spiritual growth or to accelerate our spiritual growth. We have to understand that there is a contrast between the divine viewpoint approach of stress-busting versus the human viewpoint approach of just merely coping with life's problems. And see, unbelievers, we often look at unbelievers and, and we see someone who has no doctrine and they go through tremendous uh, difficulty or heartache or challenges. They face health challenges or perhaps the loss of a loved one, the death of a child, uh, and, and they seem to handle it with tremendous grace. But we don't see what's going on inside their soul. We don't know what they're leaning on, what they're relying on. We don't know if they're, they're just living in some sort of dream world where they're not addressing reality at all. We don't know that they may be going home at night and drinking themselves into a stupor before they go to sleep at night. We don't know what kind of prescription drugs they may be taking to dull the pain. We, we can't see what's really going on in somebody's soul. They may act during the day as if everything's under control, but it may be simply that, because in order to handle life and to survive, the unbeliever often has to imitate what the way he knows it ought to be, but he really doesn't have the internal resources to produce. And eventually, the house of cards 
that's created in, a, in the uh, human viewpoint soul will fall apart. So we're going to contrast stress busting with merely uh, coping. And what is going on in problem solving in the believer's life is that you have to handle the evil that you encounter in your life on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes it's just minor. Sometimes it's major. But you have to handle the evil that comes into your life on a day-to-day basis. If you're a, if, if you're a school teacher, you have to face it in the fact that you have kids that are being brought up in, in homes where there's no discipline, where there's no instruction, where there's no teaching. If you're in business, you have to handle it in the, because there's often corruption in business. There are people who are running corporations that are making decisions for all kinds of reasons. You have people who are in high places in corporations who are making decisions based on the information they're getting from their local astrologer or palm reader. And so you have occult influences coming into the workplace, and you have no knowledge of this. On the other hand, you may just have people who are operating on the basis of their own sin nature, and they're mismanaging funds, and they're... Uh, stealing from the uh, company or the corporation, uh, like what was going on down in Texas with Enron. And that happens many times in corporations. It's not because corporations are a problem. It's because corporations are made up of people who have sin natures, and they let their sin natures run wild. But any time we face adversity, the adversity is the result of living in a fallen world living in a fallen environment. So we have to learn how to handle the evil that is in our own life. Well, let's contrast this with uh, how the unbeliever handles things. Ultimately, how you handle adversity in your life is part of the overall problem that that men have struggled with for, for centuries, which is the problem of evil. How can evil exist? And we've studied this uh, many times that this is often a a challenge you'll get from an unbeliever. How can you believe in a good and loving God when there's all this evil in the world, there's all this suffering, you have warfare, you have uh, suffering, you have crime, you have children who are abused. How can you believe uh, in a God that's, that's loving when there's all this evil in the world? And the unbeliever makes it sound as if there's this tremendous... Uh, discontinuity in the life of the believer, that there's this tremendous conflict. But there's no conflict whatsoever because the unbeliever has no reason to handle evil. He can't even talk about evil because on the basis of of the assumptions of the believer, everything is just a product of evolution. It's just normal. And this is really what the the only basic uh, solution that the unbeliever has is to deny the reality of evil. He has to act, numb his mind, and act as if it really isn't there. Sometimes they do this through religious manipulation in various forms of mysticism. For example, in Hinduism, uh, they have the idea that, that evil is just an irrational appearance uh, or something of the imagination. The word that's used in Hindu is the word maya. It's not real. Uh, another way in which this is handled is that people think of good and evil as just conventions of language or culture. There's really no absolute good or absolute evil. This is one of the things that really ticked off the liberals. Because you see, the, in liberal theology 
and liberal politics often are rooted in the same basic assumption. And if you don't believe this, then you go out and research. And the place to start is with a book by Thomas Sowell called Conflict of Vision. Thomas Sowell, S-O-W-E-L-L. And he, he is one of the most brilliant thinkers in our generation. And he points out that the core assumption between conservatives and liberals is that conservatives believe that man is inherently bad or evil and liberals think that man is inherently good. See, when President Bush came out and identified the uh, terrorists who destroyed the Twin Towers as evildoers, he immediately waves a big red flag in front of all the liberals that he believes that there's real, absolute, objective evil in existence. And that just absolutely just drives them nuts because they don't believe in any absolutes, that they don't believe there's any objective evil or objective good. And man is inherently inherently good. Uh, even Osama bin Laden and and uh, Arafat and Hitler, they, they're just they're just misunderstood, and uh, and they can't really handle the fact that that when you start talking in terms of absolute evil, so they have they they think of this as some level of denial, which is of course numbing the intellectual realities of evil. Then second, there's just the, the second option for the unbeliever is just sort of an existential leap into the absurd. They just they just live with this tension, and that life is just absurd, and so everything is is just uh, meaningless. And this produces a lot of really bizarre poetry that you probably had to read in high school or college. Or the third option is to just try to escape or anesthetize the pain, and they do this through all kinds of methods, through drugs, sex, music, relationships, all kinds of escapism, alcohol, pornography, entertainment, uh, work. Barriers. Some people are very successful, not because they're hard workers, but because they can't face life. So they just pour themselves into work. They work from sun up to sun down. They can't have decent relationships or anything else. But the way they're they're coping with the pain of life is by pouring themselves into work. And this produces various neuroses and psychoses. So the believer can't do that. The believer has to have uh, basic problem-solving skills that come from the mandates of Scripture. And the first is confession. Because in confession, what we are doing is coming to God, and in essence, in our soul, we are, we are admitting that we sinned, and so it's a return to humility. I'm a sinner. I need God's grace. It is a recognition that we got God's grace at the cross, and Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins in toto at the cross. And so the issue is not my sin, the issue is my ongoing relationship with with Christ. At the instant of confession, we're filled with the Spirit, but the filling of the Spirit is a passive term. The command in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled by means of the Spirit is a passive imperative. We receive the action of the Spirit. So how do we turn this into an active problem-solving device, into a coping uh, or a stress-busting Skill. We walk by means of the Spirit, and we studied this extensively through our studies of, of uh, John 15 and uh, as well as Galatians 5 uh, 
18 and following, and Ephesians chapter 5. We walk by means of the Holy Spirit, a moment-by-moment dependence on the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And this is uh, brought out through the faith rest drill. We walk by means of faith, and we trust the Lord. We've looked at the fact that the faith rest drill has three basic elements to it. Three basic elements. The first element is that we mix our faith with the Word of God. This means we have to have the Word of God in our souls. We need to be memorizing Scripture. And after six and a half years, I hope some of you have made it a point to be memorizing Scripture and memorizing promises, at least have 10 or 12 promises committed to memory that you can claim on a regular basis whenever you're faced with any kind of adversity. From that, we draw doctrinal conclusions derived from the direct statements of God's Word, and then we have certain doctrinal rationales that, for example, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is a scriptural rationale. God is on our side. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. He knew about this uh, problem, this adversity, this difficulty in eternity past. And so it may not may surprise me, but it doesn't surprise God. And therefore, as a result of that, I know that uh, I can trust Him because He has provided everything uh, for me. As part of that, the result of operating on the faith rest drill is it produces a relaxed mental attitude. The relaxed mental attitude is the consequence of trusting God so that we can relax in the situation and not give in to fear, worry, anxiety. See, these are also coping skills. You know, most of the sins are coping skills. You try to cope with life's problems by going out and getting drunk. You're going to deal with problems of loneliness by going out and um, uh, being promiscuous. Uh, you're going to cope with uh, problems of economics by worrying and being anxious and being fearful or by going into excessive debt or, or stealing or something of that nature. So rather than using the, uh, a spiritual skill and a problem-solving device, what most people do is they bail out into some kind of mental attitude sin which leads to an overt sin, and ultimately it's going to be the result of operating on the... the uh, uh, arrogant skills beginning with self-absorption. Self-absorption leads to uh, self-indulgence. We give in to all of those feelings, all of those emotions. Self-indulgence leads to uh, self-deception. Self-deception then leads to self-justification. And at this point, see, we don't even know that we're deceived. We're calling bad good and good bad. And this is what happens to all these Christians who are sitting in all of these health and wealth gospel churches, all these prosperity churches, all this feel-good praise and worship nonsense. And they think they're worshiping God. And they think they love the Bible, and they talk about the Bible, and they wave the Bible around, and and, uh, they go through certain overt motions, but they don't love the truth. And they're in bondage to their own sin nature, and they're in bondage to their own arrogance, and they've lost the principle of Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. They They don't want the truth. 
they, they're, in, they're just caught up in religiosity that's, that's a self-absorbed psychobabble uh, religion that's the product of American or 20th century American culture. And then this leads to self-deification. So that all they can talk about is their own God, which is themselves. So these are the five arrogant skills. And that's in contrast to the believer who, through mixing faith with the Word of God, drawing doctrinal conclusions and using doctrinal rationales, has a relaxed mental attitude. And as a result of that relaxed mental attitude, he's then able to move into the next coping skill, which is grace orientation. Because when you're not relaxed, you can't be grace-oriented. You're too uptight. Something's a problem. You've got to fix something. You can't rest and rely upon God. So the next uh, stress buster is grace orientation, which involves humility. If you haven't, if you haven't confessed your sins, you're still operating on arrogance. So once you confess your sins and you had to recognize it's not you, it's God, and you have to rely upon God to take care of your your sins, then you you can once again operate on the basis of grace. And then move beyond that to the fifth basic problem-solving skill, which is doctrinal orientation, where we align our thinking with the Word of God. And that can't happen by showing up at Bible class just once or twice a week. That's why you need to be listening to tapes, reviewing this over and over and over again. And it's not just so that you can learn new things. It's to be reminded of the, of the basics of the Christian life. Uh, again, we just need to hear it over and over and over again. And some of you have been around here at Preston City Bible Church for 10, 15, 20 years. And you have had a lot of great Bible teaching. Ron did a tremendous job teaching. And I was able to come here and build on that foundation that was laid. And some of you have been here for a while, and you are really pressing on in your spiritual life and spiritual maturity. Others of you are much younger. You don't have all of those resources. You may need to have a pastor. I'm not telling you what you have to have. I'm just making options, aware, making aware of options. You may need a pastor that's more of a younger pastor, and he's going to be ministering to the younger believers in the congregation, building them for the future, and some of you have been around a while. You'll supplement with uh, uh, tapes from Charlie or me or somebody else, but you'll still be involved in the local church. This is going to be the big test for you. Are you going to stay here when there's not somebody for a while and still come on Wednesday night, still come on Sunday morning because you have to have your eye on the future and not just on what's happening right now? And I see this happen in churches. It's always an example of self-absorption. Well, it, I'm not really going to get that much out of it this morning. It's some rookie preacher who doesn't know that much. Well, what a great example of arrogance. That just demonstrates you need to get your hind end down to, down to, to Bible class. Because uh, you have to have your focus on the future and what, what God's gonna, going to provide and what God is doing and that the, the life of the church is more than sitting in the pew and taking in doctrine. And that is one of the biggest failures and flaws in Christians who have been in this so-called doctrinal movement is we've become so self-centered that it's all about sitting and filling up our own doctrinal notebooks. And we forget the basic principles on the body of Christ that I've emphasized again and again in recent years in 1 Corinthians 12, that we're members of one another. 
And we're to pray for one another and support one another. It's not just about taking in the Word. That's the primary thing. That's 90% of it. But there's application within the framework of a corporate body of believers. Now, when we're operating at this basic level, you've got this dynamic going on between the faith rest drill, doctrinal orientation, and grace orientation. And I've drawn this with uh, bidirectional arrows between each of these boxes. Because as you operate on the faith rest drill, what do you apply? You're applying principles you understand on grace. That's why he produces a relaxed mental attitude. Plus, you're applying Promises. Where did you get that? From your doctrinal orientation. As you, the more oriented you are to doctrine, how do you apply that doctrine? Through the faith rest drill, within the framework of grace. So these three uh, spiritual skills are, are interrelated and interdependent. The faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. And once they really kick into gear and you're using them, this lays the foundation for growth to spiritual maturity. And we'll just stop there this time, and we'll come back and do more review of this. I want to get into James 1 again. Just before we wrap up, I want you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2. For those of you who went through James with me when I first came, this will be a, a nice, good review. James 2.21 James 2:21 through 26 is the last paragraph in a section of, of this epistle that began back in James 1:21. It has the same theme, and the then th- the theme is application of doctrine. That if there's no application of doctrine, knowledge of doctrine does you no good spiritually. The issue is not just hearing, but applying it, and applying it isn't. Christian service in this passage. It is taking the Word and applying it in relationship to all of the adversity that comes into your life. And in James 2.21, the illustration is Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? This was the last test in Abraham's life. He's focusing on tests. This is an illustration of the principle that is laid out in verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various tests because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect work, its completing work, its maturing work, you could translate it, that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That is the goal of the Christian life. That is the goal of the epistle of James. I'm more and more convinced of it today than I was when I came six years ago. That James lays out the ultimate at the beginning, and the rest of the epistle is designed to teach us how to do this. And and Abraham learned that, and that's what we're going to learn in the life of Abraham. So next time we'll start with James and the principle of uh, problem-solving devices and adversity Uh, testing, and then we will uh, wrap things up for the short term with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, this opportunity to uh, be reminded about the central place of Bible doctrine in our soul and in our thinking and in our life, that it is a walk by the Spirit and by your word, and that the most important thing that we dedicate our life to day in and day out 
is to be is the study of your word, the application of your word, and constantly being reminded that you are faithful and you are the one who always provides everything that we need, not everything we want, but everything we need. And your grace is sufficient for us in every manner of test or trial that we face, and that the human solution is no solution. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.